Well, friends, I want to start out with two quotes for your consideration. Can you tell me who wrote them, A, and the context in which they were written, B? Who wrote them and the context in which they were written? First quote. What Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors was the idea that they could be like gods, be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside God and apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, classes, empire, slavery, the long terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. God cannot give us happiness and a peace apart from himself because it's not there. There is no such thing. Quote number one. Now quote number two is going to give it away, but you still may not know the context of the quote. The writer writes, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made, what? For another world. This is obviously from C.S. Lewis. He goes on to say, writing this so beautifully, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country which I shall not find until after death. I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that country and help others to do the same. Does anybody know the context of these quotes? The context of these quotes come after the London bombings of 1940, the blitzkrieg of the German Luftwaffe over the city of London. From September 7th to November 2nd, 1940, those German aircraft bombings happened for 57 consecutive nights. Can you imagine? 57 consecutive nights, over 40,000 civilians were killed. And so the BBC asked C.S. Lewis to lean into the crisis and speak words of hope, grace, truth, and faith in the midst of national crisis, and that's exactly what he did. He gave 22 BBC broadcasts that would be aired on Sunday nights all over the country at 8.30 p.m., giving people hope. They were later compiled into a book that many of you know and love as what? Mere Christianity. That's the context of that amazing book intended to instill hope and comfort in the midst of national crisis that is precisely the context of our prophet today. We're looking at the book of Obadiah. 
kind of in honor, not only looking forward to Advent, but in honor of one of the triplets of the Williamson's babies. We have Elijah, we have Gideon, and we have Obadiah. I appreciate the confidence and the strength of the Williamsons to choose the name Obadiah. I think they're calling him Obi for short. Very cute. Do you know what that name means? It means the Lord's servant, worshiper of Yahweh. May that precious boy be the Lord's servant and a worshiper of Yahweh all the days of his life. Obadiah is one of my favorite books of the Bible. It is the shortest book in the Old Testament. If you were to search, I think this is still the case on Bible Gateway, it is the least searched for book in any search on the Bible Gateway. Okay, so I think actually, when you see how a seemingly obscure book like this points to the person and work of Jesus Christ. When you see how the book of Obadiah anticipates Advent, it's going to greatly encourage you. So that's the context. The context in Judah is national crisis, national trial. The city of Jerusalem has been destroyed. Please stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to go through the whole book of Obadiah today. I get criticized for doing too much scripture sometimes. We're going to do a whole book in one sitting. It's only one chapter. Kind of a joke there. Okay. Obadiah 1 verses 1 through 14. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights, You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Well, though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you, you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom? Those of understanding in the mountains of Esau, your warriors, Teman, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, 
you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them and their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Okay, as we know, we say this week after week, context is what? No, I'm sorry, not context. You weren't listening. Repetition is the key to learning. And so we want to put this amazing little book in its historical context. So giving us some historical context, remember Abram was called out of Ur of the Chaldees. There will be a test in a few weeks on this. He was called out of Ur of the Chaldees in about 2000 BC. That's the first bookend. About 1500 BC, Moses is born. About 1000 BC, David is crowned king. Okay, 931 B.C., I know this is a lot of history, 931 B.C., the United Kingdom of Israel breaks into two nations, the Northern Kingdom in the north and the Southern Kingdom in the south. The Northern Kingdom was called what? Do you remember? It's very, this is very confusing. The Northern Kingdom is called Israel or Ephraim, the southern kingdom is called Judah, okay? And then later in Jesus' day, the southern kingdom is called Judea. That's 931 B.C. 722 B.C., the people of God had not heeded the prophets. The prophets had called God's people to what? To repent of their what? Of their incessant idolatry. And they sent prophet after prophet, and the people would not listen. And so God raised up an empire called Assyria to invade and destroy the northern kingdom. That's 722 B.C. What was the hope? Then prophets were sent to the southern kingdom. What do you think their message was? Don't make the same mistake as the people of God in the northern kingdom. If God destroyed them, God will bring the same kind of judgment on you. And the people of the southern kingdom did not listen to those prophets. And so in 586 BC, the dreaded Babylonian empire, God raised up and they annihilated the southern kingdom. And they utterly destroyed Jerusalem, something that no one else was able to do in history, the Babylonians in 586 BC took apart 
the city of Jerusalem took away their king and caused massive devastation. That is the context of Obadiah. The Babylonians have come in. They've swept across the nation. They have destroyed Jerusalem, the city of David. They have taken thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of Jews as POWs to Mesopotamia. The Jews are reeling. They are hurting. They need hope. They need comfort. Praise God for Obadiah the servant of the Lord, the worshiper of Yahweh who brings words of hope in the midst of the devastation. Let's look at our text. This is in the immediate aftermath of the destruction of Jerusalem. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go against her for battle. So this is kind of confusing. I thought you just said, David, that the Babylonians were the ones that God raised up to sweep down and destroy Jerusalem, but God is issuing judgment on Edom. What sense does that make? Why is God calling out to the nations to gather together to destroy Edom? Well, we're going to answer that question. Do you remember who Edom is? If You can look if you have a Bible on a Bible map. So modern-day Jordan overlaps with ancient Edom. So if you think of Israel in your mind's eye, Edom was their neighbor to the southeast. Their immediate neighbor to the southeast was the ancient kingdom of Edom. And God is calling the nations to destroy her. Look at verse 2, and then verses 5 and 6, where Obadiah describes, through this prophecy, the extent of the judgment that will be meted out on the Edomites, or on Edom. Verse 2, see, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised, verse 5, if thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted if grape pickers came to you? Would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau, that's, that's kind of a synonym for ancient Edom. Um, the Lord refers to them as Esau. But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. Okay, I did a little research on burglary and thievery. And when thieves come into your house or mine, you know, the vast majority of the time we're not there. And they can do their work in between eight and ten minutes. It is in, it is out. They often know what they want. They know where to look. And they get out and go sell those items, okay? But in contrast to the way that thieves operate, they're in, they're out, they take a few things, okay? The kind of thievery that's gonna be perpetuated against Edom is very different. These thieves, so to speak, in air quotes, these thieves, when they go in to steal from Edom, they're taking everything. 
They're not leaving anything behind. Look with me at verses 7 through 9. This is God saying to the Edomites, whereas thieves just take a few things, I'm taking everything from you. Okay? Now 7 through 9. All your allies will force you to the border. Your so-called friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread, those who you trade with, in a sense, will set a trap for you. But you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau, your warriors teaming? They'll be terrified. And everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Okay, why does he keep calling them Esau? What sense does that make that he equates the Edomites with Esau? Well, we'll get there. Now go to panel six. And we'll be going back and forth, so just have them both ready for easy access. Verse 15, the Edomites are in trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you, meaning you Edomites, just as you Edomites drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion, see Mount Zion at this point was destroyed. We're looking to a different day. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy. And Jacob, okay, we've got Esau now and Jacob, and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire. And Joseph, a flame. Esau will be stubble, and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. The destruction of Edom is going to be so complete that there will at some point be no survivors among the Edomites. The nation would be completely destroyed. Okay, let's go back to panel three. Let's look at verses 10 through 14. Like, so what would warrant this kind of judgment against the Edomites? What could possibly warrant this kind of particular judgment and shame on the ancient nation of Edom? Look at verse 10. You're gonna see because the sin they committed against God's people was very personal. It was the most personal kind of betrayal. Look at verse 10. Because of the violence against your brother, Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. Okay? If you remember your Bible history, Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had who? Jacob and Esau. 
If you remember, Esau was very hungry one day, okay? After being out in the field, he was famished. He felt like he was starving, okay? He's very hungry. What does Jacob do? He offers him some food in exchange for Esau's what? Birthright and blessing. And so Esau gives up his birthright for a bowl of soup, forfeits his place among, you know, in the privileged uh, order of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so God ultimately chooses Jacob over Esau. What nation flows out of Jacob? Israel and the people of God. Esau, who foolishly sold his birthright, what nation comes from his line? Edom. These nations were to be brotherly nations. These nations, in a sense, should have been allies. They should have cared for one another, okay? Let's look at what the Edomites did. When the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem in 586, unfortunately, sadly, tragically, the Edomites had been waiting for this. They had been waiting for their opportunity to get back at Jacob. They were bitter, they were angry, and so when the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, Edom couldn't wait to help out. Edom couldn't wait to kick a man when he was down. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth. Okay, so when the Babylonians came in and destroyed Jerusalem and pillaged the temple, you know, the Edomites are coming in, they're bearing witness, and they're just watching. They're not providing any resistance. They're not providing any defense or protection. They're just letting it happen. And foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them. So you didn't just stand there. You, won't, you weren't merely aloof. You somehow participated. Look at verse 12. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. That's exactly what the Edomites were doing. They were rejoicing, they were boasting, they were celebrating, they were participating. This was their moment in the sun, as it were. Look at verse 13, it continues. You should not march through the gates of my people. This is God speaking through Obadiah. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them and their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. So they gloated, they rejoiced, they participated, and they looted. So you've seen, you know, sadly that happens not infrequently today, even in our country, you know, when there's sometimes chaos in various cities and you'll see massive looting that goes on. The Edomites were looting the temple and the riches of God's people. But in verse 14, it gets even worse. 
Not only did they gloat and rejoice and loot. Verse 14. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. So imagine in your mind's eye, what's going on in Jerusalem? The Babylonians have overwhelmed it. They've conquered the capital city. Jews by the thousands are fleeing in fear and in panic. The Babylonians are trying to round them up to take them to Mesopotamia, and the Edomites helped. They rounded up the Jews and gave them to the Babylonians for destruction and captivity. This is why the book of Obadiah was written. To give the people of God comfort and hope that a day was coming when God would make everything right. When he would restore his people and help his people and restore the kingdom to Israel. You know, it's fascinating. What does it say um, if you go to panel six again? Verse 18, Jacob will be a fire, Joseph a flame, Esau the Edomites, they will be stubble. They will set him on fire and destroy him. What does it say? There will be no survivors from Esau, Yahweh has spoken. This was fulfilled historically to the letter. So they were allies with Babylon. Babylon, shortly after this, destroys Edom. Then later, Edom resettles somewhere else, and the Nabataeans came in in the 400s B.C. and further destroyed the Edomites. They then resettled in southern Judea, and the Edomites joined in the rebellion against Rome in 70 A.D., and they were totally wiped out, and there is no record of the existence of any Edomite after 70 A.D., it was fulfilled to the letter. So question for you. Whereas, you know, the Babylonians may not have been familiar with the God of Israel, do you think the Edomites, as sons and daughters of Abraham, would have been familiar with who Abraham was and the God of Israel? How was it that the Edomites thought they were going to get away with this? How did they think this was going to go well. Look with me at verses 3 and 4 if you go back to the previous panel. This is why they thought they were going to get away with it. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights, you who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Edom was situated in these high mountain crags. The Edomites lived in what they perceived to be in a mountain fortress, and they felt very secure. It was almost impossible to conquer the ancient fortresses of Edom. 
And so they felt protected. They felt invincible. They felt like no one could get to them. I love this quote from J.C. Ryle. It's very convicting to me, a 19th century Anglican minister and writer. J.C. Ryle wrote, Let us watch against pride in every shape. Pride of intellect, pride of wealth, pride in our own perceived goodness. Oh, that's so dangerous. Nothing is so likely to keep a man out of heaven and prevent him seeing Christ as pride. And that's what was preventing the Edomites, was bitterness and pride. They felt immortal and invincible. Ryle ends with this, so long as we think we are something, we shall never be saved. Isn't that amazing? The way up in the Christian life is the way down. As opposed to the pride of the Edomites, what did Nate say regarding um, Philippians 2? What did the Lord Jesus do? Though um, he existed in glory from eternity, he did not consider it robbery to give it up. Like he, did, he didn't feel like it was... That those titles, that place and glory was to be held on to at all costs. So he willingly made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, exactly the opposite of the Edomites. They would be pried out of their mountain fortress and they would suffer national judgment. Go back to panel six, verse 16. Look at this. Hopefully, we're going to start driving it home. Verse 16, just as you drank, you Edomites, you drank on my holy hill. I mean, they did it with malice aforethought. Just as you drank, what do you think that means? The Edomites, they drank on my holy hill. What do you think that means they did when they breached the walls and went in behind the Babylonians? That means they had like a religious celebration. To drink on my holy hill, that, that's a metaphor for religious celebration. They were praising God for what was happening. Just as you drank on my holy hill, just as you drank, you know, because you were excited at, at, at the demise of the Lord's people, the king of Israel, you celebrated his demise. So all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been why was that cup or that metaphor applied to the Edomites because because it was a metaphor for judgment drinking in the Old Testament drinking judgment that's a metaphor okay what is it that Jesus prayed in the garden of Gethsemane Lord if it be your will have what have this cup pass from me these wicked, arrogant Edomites, of whom are they a picture? They are a picture of you and me. The Edomites are a picture of the nations 
who refused to bow the knee to the son of David. Edom is a picture of unbelievers who reject Christ and his gospel. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 says, and you know, some were such of you. In other words, you were just like that. I was just like that. But we were redeemed in Christ Jesus. Think about the personal nature of that betrayal that the Edomites committed. That's a reflection of our sin and our wickedness. What do you think it was that filled up that cup from which Jesus drank in Gethsemane and on the cross? What filled that cup to the brim? It was your sin and it was mine. And that's why the son of David earnestly prayed that it would be taken from him. It was awful beyond our wildest imagination. And that's what Jesus drank to the very dregs. What are the dregs? The dregs are the bottom, you know, the bitter portion where the, the sediment is. Jesus drank from that cup to be as if he had never been in a sense. Can you imagine what that was like for the true son of David to drink from the cup of God's wrath all the way to the bottom. That's what this book is pointing forward to, to a day that Jesus would drink so that we would never have to, so that people like the Edomites from all over the world would know his grace and his loveliness and his beauty. Look at, go back to panel six and we're done. Look, look, look at the future that's envisioned from this servant of the Lord. And I want you to think about what was it? What was the mechanism that would ultimately affect this or, or secure this? This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan, they will possess the land. And the land there, this is going to be a metaphor of the promised land, the true promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers, that's the Hebrew word for saviors. God would bring a number of deliverers, but it would culminate in one. Deliverers will go up to Mount Zion to govern. Mount Zion is a metaphor for Jerusalem or ultimately the new heavens and the new earth. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau. How does the book end? And the kingdom will be the Lord's. The mechanism for that, what affected or made, was made effectual for that was Jesus drinking from that cup all the way to the dregs. Every single drop for you and me. Who could have imagined that the son of David would do that not just to redeem his people, but to redeem the nations? That is incredible. 
Is not the book of Obadiah incredibly relevant to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you see how this part relates to the whole? It is incredible that the book of Obadiah, the servant of the Lord, could prepare our hearts for Advent, and it does indeed. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you and praise you for who you are and for all that you have done. We thank you that though it seems almost unimaginable um, from our perspective, from our vantage point, it seems almost unimaginable that one day the entire world, the entire cosmos will be the kingdom of the Lord. Father, we know that um, we were not redeemed from our empty way of life with silver and gold. We were redeemed because you drank and you drank and you drank as if you had never been. You drank every drop all the way to the dregs. You suffered the worst kind of judgment. You suffered judgment unimaginable to save and redeem a wicked people like the Edomites, a dark-hearted people like us. Lord, change us, transform us, help us to look forward to Advent at the birth of this Redeemer. We thank you for this book the book of Obadiah, the servant of the Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.